This is a Culture Inject production. The Nevers Podcast presents Firefly Back in the Skies. Welcome back to Firefly Back in the Skies, a retrospective series presented by the Nevers Podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Chirag. And this week, we're revisiting episode two, or episode one, however you want to view it, the train job. All right, let's get into it. So here's a synopsis. Uh, Captain Mal Reynolds and his motley crew of space traders get a job that seems to be right up their alley. Gangster Adelaide Niska wants to, um, he wants them to rob a train and uh, deliver the goods to him. That's easy enough for the crew to manage. Uh, and then Mal and Zoe, they have no trouble getting the job done. Jane drops down on the train and grabs it and gets shot in the leg. And uh, Mal and Zoe uh, stay on the train and get off in the town. And then they manage to convince the local authorities that they're a married couple who have come looking for work. However... When they overhear that the stolen cargo was urgently needed medical supplies, Mal reconsiders whether he wants to do Nishka's dirty work. Meanwhile, back on the ship, Simon continues to worry about his sister River, like he always does in every episode, who is still having nightmares about her institutionalization. This aired on September 20th. So we've got our cast and crew. It's the usual players. Uh, and we've also got Michael Fairman as Adeline Niska. It's written by Joss Whedon and Tim Minear and directed by Joss Whedon. So um, we've got some kind of interesting facts and stuff. Um, so this was Firefly's alternate pilot. So we, we talked about it last week that the original pilot, Serenity, they thought was... I don't know, maybe too long and not as um, action-filled. So they went ahead and wrote this one in a very short time. So this is the one that appeared first on television. Yeah, and this is the first episode in which the hands of uh, the two-by-two two hands of blue appear. I have a whole lot to say about the opening sequence, but if you have anything to say first, you can go ahead and then I'll jump into that and then you know we can go from there. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say kind of like I said last week, I was going to try and watch this as if it was the first episode because I've only ever watched it on DVD and watched Serenity first. So it's kind of like, it's a good episode. It's, you know, a train heist job. What's not to like? But I think as an initial impression for a viewer getting into this show, it's not obviously as in-depth as Serenity because there you've got a two-parter everyone kind of gets introduced to you and everything gets laid out. This episode, I think they redo that, you know, in conversation with people at the start, you know, asking Kaylee if the if the passengers are okay. We're like, okay, so this is the main crew essentially and then there's passengers on the ship as well and we kind of slowly get introduced to everyone. It kind of re-goes over everything we've kind of already got from yeah from serenity um but in in less detail that is an interesting question though so do you think that this uh episode so do you think this is a better which do you think is a better pilot this one or the actual pilot i guess your answer would be the actual pilot yeah only because i don't like being spoon-fed everything like i said about the nevers i like kind of just learning things as you go which i think 
happened in Serenity, but it's nice to have that, you know, really seeing how River and Simon end up on the ship. I think it's really nice. It's just a really nice episode. Jumping in at this is not, I don't think, kind of detrimental in any way. And you're still introduced to all the characters, but I do think that it's a much better series overall if you start at Serenity. Well, I will say that for for maybe like someone who's coming into who's someone who's coming into this show very green and just um just like like an entry level viewer, I feel like I can kind of empathize with the fact that maybe this would be a better format for a pilot episode because it's shorter. It's really tight and it's really like fun and light. So I get that this would be an easier introduction to this show rather than that like one and a half hour, two hour long, almost like um, slow drawn, you know, like takes its time kind of pilot. Mm. Yeah, Dollhouse has a very similar, the original pilot is on the DVD box set and it's, I think, double length. It feels very long. Uh, it's it's not as good as the original episode and the original the the one that airs um the actual pilot for dollhouse is the same length and the same format as you know all the other episodes to come so i guess in 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 that respect train job is that straight into firefly you know it's the one job a week kind of gets you straight into what the show is going to be week by week right so you know it's still good it covers everything that we would that we've learned in serenity in a small amount of time and like I say it jumps right into the action and for a viewer it kind of gets them right into what the show is going to be yeah i will say that and yeah it kind of makes this episode one of the weaker episodes in my opinion is that it it does have to be a little too expository like like you mm. said, it kind of tells you everything you already saw in the first episode. But I guess, you know, like for people who saw it while it was airing, this would be the first one. But, you know, like for the Netflix generation, which would be me, it's more I guess this is more of a criticism of Fox than it is of Firefly and how like ridiculously they mismanaged this thing. But I, I will yeah. say, like, they did manage to reestablish all the character relationships and all the interesting things about the show and what, um, I guess, the what brings you back to it, like what the hook is in a serial sense with the two-by-two two hands of blue guys looking for River and all that stuff. It manages to do that in, like, really skillful ways that are organic and um, not, like, too... I guess, I don't know, redundant. Anyways, we, we can get into it. Yeah, so you said you got a lot to talk about the opening bar fight? Yeah, so so the opening scene, and I'm going to rattle off a sequence of events. So Mal, Zoe, and Jane are at a bar playing Chinese checkers or something. And Mal makes a bold move in the game. And he's like, I live on the edge. And then Zoe makes a move in the game, capitalizing on the stupidity of Mal's boldness. And that puts him in like a bad position. And he responds like, I've given some thought to moving off the edge, not an ideal location, maybe somewhere in the middle. And right when Mal is saying maybe somewhere in the middle, 
he's interrupted by a lar- like by a loud drunk guy toasting to the alliance on unification day which is the day the alliance won so the way that i see it i this this is a, a carefully calibrated scene that tells us subliminally everything we need to know about mal like it tells us for one it tells us that mal is a guy who is capable of making bold moves right as he does in the game it tells us that Mal lives on the edge, which can be interpreted in the context of the show to mean the edge of the galaxy outside of Alliance control, like the border planets, the very much the edge. And um, when living on the edge puts Mal in a bad position, as it does with Zoe's move in the game, Mal starts to think, maybe I shouldn't live on the edge, maybe I should move to the middle. And that thought is immediately interrupted by the exact reason why he has to live on the edge, which is the loud, drunk, oppressive, kind of bigoted guy toasting to the Alliance. Toast! Quiet! Shut up! I'm, uh, I got words. I'm saying this is an auspicious day. We all know what day it is. Suspicious. What day is it? A glorious day for all the proud members of the Allied Planets. Unification Day! Yeah, yeah, yeah. The end of the scumbag independence and the dawn of a new galaxy. Yeah! Captain? Just feel the need for another drink. So, I was thinking, like, I think that bar fight that follows that scene, it's... So the bar fight that follows is a reenactment of the Battle of Serenity Valley in the opening sequence of the pilot episode, which, as we were talking about, kind of makes this a really good backdoor pilot episode because it's hitting the same points and summarizing everything that happened. Like, for example, like the conflict between Mal and the drunk guy who was toasting to the Alliance, you see a microcosm of the conflict between the Independence and the Alliance. Like, you see Mal wasn't independent, and he lost the war to the Alliance. And you see, when Zoe knocks the drunk guy out, that she's in the same boat as Mal, and feels perhaps even more strongly about it than he does. And then, like, with Jane, you see the fact that Jane has no idea what day it is, and he kind of stays back like a neutral party when the bar bar brawl breaks out. He's like, I didn't fight in no war, good luck. Um, so you see that Jane is this kind of amoral, only concerned about his own shit kind of guy. But of course, like the like the harshness of Jane is softened by the fact that he eventually gives it and joins the fight, like the bar fight. But it's either because he cares about Mal and Zoe and is backing them up, or just because he likes punching people. <laughs> and we don't know that yet as an audience. Like that mystery about his loyalty... And the quality of his character and morals is a narrative through line in this episode and the whole season, really. But I I wanted to cut to Mal and Zoe fighting uh, fighting against Alliance in this episode. Just like they are in the beginning of the pilot episode in Serenity Valley. Only this time, it's like funnier and lighter and it's not soldiers. It's drunk guys from a bar. Uh, 
And then Mal and Zoe are outnumbered and literally pushed to the edge. Like, they're literally pushed to the edge. It's like the edge of a cliff. And the camera focuses on the edge enough to make me convinced that it's a reference back to when Mal said during the game of Chinese checkers that he lives on the edge. They're kind of staring at defeat. And Mal just straight up tells the audience, this is why we lost the war, you know, superior numbers. And Zoe responds, thanks for the reenactment, sir. Um, I think like the writers are literally reenacting the pilot episode in this one yeah. to make it a backdoor pilot. It, but there is one key difference that I wanted to point out. Um, in the pilot episode, the air support that Mal and Zoe were relying on never came. But in this episode, the air support does come in the form of Wash flying the Firefly ship Serenity, where the pilot's opening sequence ended with Alliance ships rising above Serenity Valley, like victorious, like dark angels of despair. This episode's opening sequence ends with Serenity rising from below that cliff to the rescue, like like a great angel of freedom and joy and possibility which is what I think the ship represents to Mal, all these ideals. And I love the last line where the drunk Alliance guy is like, I'm thinking somebody needs to put you down, dog. What do you think? And Mal says, I'm thinking we'll rise again. And just as Mal says rise, that's when Serenity rises from below that cliff. So the synchronicity there feels like the ship Serenity represents that spark of rebellion that is still alive and i think that's why mal named the ship serenity after the serenity valley where he lost the war because as long as mal can keep flying keep living on the edge and not give in then the rebellion is alive and the poetry of the ship being like a firefly which is an insect that in the dark in the darkest night, it sparks bright, right? I think that fits with the spark of rebellion metaphor, where this firefly ship named Serenity is keeping that spark alive in the like the vast blackness of space. So I thought that was really cool. And I want to just, just finish off that scene with the clincher, which is when Zoe says, um, she says, it's funny, sir how you always seem to find yourself in an alliance-friendly bar come Mm -hmm. you day looking for a quiet drink. And she's obviously saying it sarcastically because implicit in that is that Mal is not looking for a quiet drink. He's looking for a reenactment. Like, he's not done fighting. He's just like a dormant volcano waiting for his moment. And later on in this episode, when Book asks Mal why he took River and Simon in when they're like highly wanted fugitives, I think the answer to that question is that Mal took them in because they are his moment. It's through them that he gets to fight back against the Alliance. And like, obviously, when we get to the movie Serenity, that's exactly what happens. But... Did you have any thoughts about that opening scene or, you know, the, the question as to, like, why Mal took them in or anything like that? I think you've covered that pretty uh, 
in depth. I was going to say the same thing that it's like a reenactment of the Battle of Serenity. Um, we're getting all the same information that we got from the pilot, but just kind of condensed into this barb rule. Yeah, I guess my favourite moments. Jane is probably my favourite character throughout the series. Um, I love him. He, yeah, I love that line. I, I don't fight no war. He's like, best of luck though. <laughs> it just, yeah, it just shows that I guess for everybody, this will come up in a letter later on from one of our listeners, but for me, everybody that wasn't directly involved in the war, you know, I guess you're kind of living your life and you're just under this governing body and there's not really much more to it. But if you were directly involved back then, it's kind of a whole different story because you saw it, you saw what happened, you were fighting on the side of the underdogs and you didn't come out on top. So, you know, everybody's living like a really different life and depending on where you're living, especially out on the border planets, you kind of see it from Mao's side, which we kind of get later on in this episode. So just out of curiosity, like what is it about Jane in this episode that appeals to you? Because he's pretty unlikable by design. A lot of shows, I'm always kind of like drawn to the villainous characters. And in this show, the villains are kind of the alliance and you don't really have, you have the two by two hands of blue, but there's not like one face to kind of, you know, who is the villain in this show. So I guess Jane is kind of the villainous-esque character. Yeah, I don't know. He's just this like, he shouldn't be lovable, but he's lovable. <laughs> well, I would I would jump on that and say that I think that Mal is the villain of this episode. And I, I, I want to connect a couple dots here and I want to see what you think, Laura. Mm-hmm. So there's a scene in this episode where Mal, has he just kind of walks in on Simon and River in the Med Bay clinic place, whatever. And River goes, Mal, bad, in Latin, right? Do you know which scene I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, in the Med Bay, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think the reason River connects Mal with bad is because the writers are telling the audience that Mal sees himself as bad. And, I mean, that kind of echoes the um, the pilot episode where we see Kaylee Lang on the, the hospital bed and she says, I think you're nice too to Mal. And he's like, no, I'm a mean old man, right? Yeah. And I think that it's kind of confirmed in the Niska scene where Niska is intimidating Mal by showing him this guy hanging upside down who didn't do Niska's job correctly. And you can see like Mal shudder a little bit and Niska says, what, you you don't like me to kill this man? And Mal says, no, I'm sure he was a bad person. And Mal uses the word bad as a signifier because I think he sees himself as that guy who didn't do Niska's job correctly and Mm -hmm. is hanging upside down and being tortured. So like the interesting thematic reversal that takes place in this episode is that precisely by not doing Niska's job correctly and giving those meds back to the townspeople, Mal is the good person, not the bad person. But yeah, like that Mal means bad connection, I feel like is really a central theme of this episode. I'm not sure how you feel about that. Yeah, I think the whole episode's kind of like putting out there the 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 main struggle that these characters have and how, you know, he's they do bad things all the time because they have to. 
And I think that you're right that Mao struggles himself with like whether he's a good man or not. You know, he's not in a good place after the Battle of Serenity. Right. And I think you nailed it. You you really like nailed it when you said because they have to like, like what Inara says in this episode, they take jobs, they can get even legitimate ones. But the further you get away from the central planets, the harder things are. So this is part of it. Like the crime that you have to do to survive is part of it. And it's a bit of a, I guess, a moral struggle for these characters because they, I mean, I feel like Mal is living on the edge like he is for a righteous reason. But in order to do that, he has to contend with some kind of un unsavory people. Niska being an example of that. Uh, Badger being, being an example of that. I can't speak. Um, I guess the in the pilot, the lady who shot him, I forget her name, Patience. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a struggle for sure, but it makes it interesting. It does indeed. And talking about that medbay scene, I just want to um, point out how amazing Summer Galau is um, as yeah. an actress. Yeah, she's fantastic. And River's introduction in that scene where she has that nightmare flashback of all the, like, the shitty things they did to her brain and she freaks out and Simon comes up. Simon comes up and he's like, it's me. Do you know who I am? And River's like, you're Simon. And that's mm-hmm. that's another backdoor pilot moment where you ha- they they're like having to tell the audience who these people are, yeah. even though like we already know who Simon is, but River has to say you're Simon, so people who are just coming into it know that. So it's those moments that kind of I don't know cheapen this episode a little bit. But again, like I'm gonna put that blame on Fox squarely. The whole next kind of conversation we get between Mal and Book is again kind of re-educating us or trying to educate us for the first time about everything that's going on on the ship. Uh, I love the whole... So Shepard Book says that Simon is a really brave man and Mal's like, yeah, he's my hero. (laughs) And it's funny because, you know, I guess to Mal, who's actually like a war hero, well, kind of, you know, not necessarily a hero, but... He's fought real battles and is kind of brave and courageous. And Simon's just this, you know, rich, schooled boy who hasn't really been through any hardship up until this stuff with his sister. So I guess kind of comparing the two, you know, how brave is he? But that's probably what's going through Mal's mind anyway. I wonder I wonder if Mal, like, what kind of relationship he has with Simon as far as respect because I don't think Mal does respect Simon a whole lot because Simon kind of represents the Alliance central planet person who grew up with uncalloused hands and didn't really have to, you know, deal with the hardship of life and um, experience living as a person who didn't, who wasn't born into i guess um uh what's the word like a favorable a favorable situation who wasn't born zach efron who (laughs) played the child simon yeah like uh, i i get that like i understand what simon represents to mal uh, who who is it like he represents a someone to be punched essentially more than (laughs) once yeah i think it's definite um yeah they kind of give you the feeling between them without 
ep- the pilot episode. It kind of just delves straight into that he obviously has a dislike for him. They mention again, so Mal says again to book, you're welcome on my boat, God ain't. And the moment is not as nice as in the pilot episode because we've seen like in that episode you have him with the cross and then him talking about God and you kind of see a lot of it. Where in in this it's very like straight up, you know, you're you're welcome on my boat, but God ain't. Doesn't it doesn't kind of hit as hard as it does in the pilot. Well, I mean they have to they have to reintroduce that yeah. godless aspect in some way or another. Some more comedy that I love is so Mal goes into Anara's shuttle and she's like, What did I tell you about Bajanin's my shuttle? He's like, that it's manly and impulsive. <laughs> <laughs> He's just so like Nathan Fillion has a way with, you know, how sarcastic and funny he is that just nobody else can match. <laughs> yeah, he can make those he can make that sound like um like weirdly innocent the way he because like in in the hands of of a more like a more gruff actor, <laughs> it might be not as you know I don't know low key, but I, he does a really good job. He has this clownish uh, gravity to him that that is really appealing, and uh, you know he, he's uh, parlayed that into several several TV shows, and he's been working for a long time, so mm. he's definitely got something. Uh, I also love the Space Monkeys bit. So when he's asking Kaylee's what gone in, he's like, was it Space Monkeys? Terrible Space Monkeys. <laughs> it's just, a, it's good to see that, like, I don't know whether it's Mal covers up, you know, any inscrutities of himself with comedy. And it's just like... Yeah, probably. I yeah. mean, that's probably a thing in the Whedon verse in general. Every character kind of has that aspect to them. I was going to say, like, in that same seen his interactions with Inara. I feel like this episode does a really good job of re-establishing and also developing the relationship between Mal and Inara. I guess incrementally, but still I appreciate that increment. Just like when Mal tells Inara that they have that job with the sadist guy, Niska, and he tells her to stay in her shuttle, that romantic tension i guess is kind of introduced in a a really interesting way and then the same thing is paralleled when book is talking to inara and book asks her how he can be useful and she says you could always pray that they make it back safely and book is like i don't think the captain would like me doing that inara goes don't tell him i never do and that really establishes that they both care about each other mutually. And, you know, I I mean, that they're kind of... Other than River, the Mal and Nara relationship is the driving engine of the show, I feel like. Yeah, I was going to say that I really liked this interaction between them in this episode. I feel like in the first episode, it's more covered up with, like, him obviously not being happy about her being a companion, but in a way that is almost just like him insulting her. Whereas in this, that interaction between them, I found just so real. You know, they're clearly showing how much they care about each other. He doesn't want her to go, yeah, to the to the planet in case she gets hurt. You know, she's like, oh, I'd almost think you're being a gentleman. And then you yeah. get, again, the comedy at the end when he's like, have you got time to do my hair? Yeah. <laughs> 
I will say, speaking of the planet that they go to, it's interesting how like the sh- the shittiest place in the universe is called Paradiso. Did mm-hmm. you notice that? Yeah. Like Par- Paradiso is paradise. And I think I think my theory is that the name of that city represents the lie told by the alliance. Like I think presumably the alliance the, the alliance kind of, they lured these settlers with promises of paradise. You yeah. know, like when we terraform this place, it'll be the Garden of Eden. And all these people moved there and just got abandoned and got these weird lung diseases or something. And it's shown pretty explicitly that the Alliance is totally indifferent to the suffering of all these people. Like they allow the meds to go missing. They don't care. Mm -hmm. They don't care at all. But what they do care about is River because she represents their undoing. Like she could collapse the entire corrupt Jenga and they know it. And that's why they're after her. But they don't care about the meds going missing. And that's such an indictment on the Alliance in this episode. I I just have the feeling of detesting what the Alliance represents when I see this kind of Star Trek, um, like, first lieutenant or whatever... Mm. saying you know we have more important things to worry about than whatever this is uh, tell tell the the people to go to the next station or whatever so i i get like i i'm on mal's side i get where he his his head spaces with this kind of this this government whatever you want to call it yeah i thought that i thought the paradiso thing was interesting yeah like you say it's like promising people these new terraformed worlds and then they're just falling apart and they've all got issues. But after that point, they're like, eh, well, you know, you just have to deal with it. But the fact that the Alliance are right there and they're just like, no, we're going to leave. We're not going to help you. You're just like, seriously? <laughs> um, yeah, so they really like show you in a really good way and get you on the side of like not liking the Alliance. And then obviously we have like everything on the train. Like it's funny that... There's a whole squad of Alliance. I think you said this in the beginning. This is like a more funny laid back way of them fighting the Alliance um, than having the battle shown. So here they're kind of, Zoe and Mal are kind of, well more Mal, <laughs> Zoe's worried, but Mal's thinking this is this is fun. We're getting to take something right from under the Alliance's nose and without them knowing it, he's kind of having to get a little win, you know, against them. Yeah. He's like, I do this job for free. Yeah. <laughs> I love the line. So Zoe's like, uh, if you die, can I have your share? That's the kind of joking that I feel like two people can have who've been in the foxhole together. Yeah. Like, you know, two people who have that relationship of camaraderie, which is unconventional because it's a man and a woman, and you generally don't see that kind of best buddy that... um you know, that friendship that is unthreatened by any kind of sexual tension or, or anything like that. They genuinely have that, you know, relationship with each other, which was really funny when when they kind of are pretending to be husband and wife. And 
Mal is like, just remember, I love you. And she's like, what, sir? (laughs) (laughs) That was was a really fun uh, challenge of that relationship in that moment where she's like, what? Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think it's interesting as well, like how easy and how much Mal seems to kind of enjoy um, kind of playing, like acting. And Zoe's like a much kind of, not harsher, but she's very kind of like, more regimented she's she's not as into kind of playing pretend as Mao is yeah and that and those jokes can be made precisely because we know as an audience that there is no uh possibility of any romanticism between them because zoe is so firmly rooted in her relationship with wash and you know like her relationship with mal is very much I guess, commander and uh, sub-soldier, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we'll probably get into this in, in the subsequent episodes, but their relationship is very much challenged from the perspective of Wash, who, you know, because obviously his wife is... Uh, his wife honors the authority of Mal to a, to an extent that... A husband might I don't know whatever those gender roles are but it's interesting that at least as audience members we know there's no kind of uh there's nothing romantic happening between them and that's such a safety in that relationship that when those jokes happen it's fun to laugh because it's not like you're worried about a love triangle which is the worst thing you can do in anything i just i don't want to see any love triangles <laughs> we then cut to kind of the majority of the rest of the crew um and you've got kaylee and and jane and and simon i love simon he's just like you know what are we doing and she's just like oh crime <laughs> He's like, oh, oh, good. <laughs> it's like the most awkward interaction ever. But I love how um, she's just so innocent. She's like, oh, crime, you know. <laughs> and she says it and it's totally fine. And then like, she's like, uh, he's like, have you guys ever done this before? She's like, uh, she laughs and she's like, no, we've never done this before. <laughs> but there's a there's like a confidence she has because she's this innocent character who I, I, I don't think anything tragic has happened to her yet to darken her. Yeah. Like, I guess, with Wesley from Angel or something, that character transformation. But with with her, I feel like she's so innocent that she has this confidence that everything is going to be okay. Everything is all right. She has a trust or a faith, I guess you can call it. Um, A faith in the... uh, in everything will turn out okay. Yeah. And that's fun to watch. Uh, and then you've got the kind of complete opposite of her, which is Jane. And he's, you know, he's on board because he's like, he's like, time for some thrilling heroics. He feels like what he's about to do is so crazy, but kind of badass at the same time. He's in for it, but I think he's also worried he's definitely going to possibly die. Yeah, he thinks he's the hero. Yeah, and he's also uh, kind of deluded at this moment that he's in charge. Um when you think there's no way that Zoe and Mal would want him in charge next. You know, he's the muscle. And everyone, I feel like, even though they're a crew and they all love each other 
everyone is semi-scared of Jane because he's just this brute and he doesn't really seem to have any values that he shows. Yeah. Yeah, and, and speaking, speaking of kind of like his harshness where in the very opening sequence he was like, um, I didn't fight no war, good luck. And he stays back and doesn't really help out, but then he ends up helping out uh, inevitably. Uh, like that harshness that softens a little bit, that kind of repeats in uh, the latter part of this episode where he's initially like, we're going to ditch Mal and Zoe on this planet. I'm in charge. We're going to go and finish this job. We're selling these stolen goods to Nishka. And, you know, like he's really threatening and really kind of physically uh, dominant in that room. Yeah. And then, like, he gets doped by <laughs> Simon and he just becomes this non-threatening kind of goof. And then he, in the end, he saves Mal's life and he has the best punchline in this episode. Yeah. I was aiming for his head. <laughs> that's the best punchline in this episode. So it, it really is that harshness that softens. And that's the trend with Jane where he's a very harsh, very selfish, individualistic kind of character. And then he like the writing softens him in a way that redeems him and opens up the possibility that maybe he can change. And I would assume that if the show continued, he probably would have evolved into a more, I guess, communal character who cares about other people, not just himself, who, who puts, who maybe like the Tony Stark thing sacrifices himself in a way to protect other people. Yeah. I think that probably would have been his character evolution, which it kind of is in the Serenity movie where he 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 decides and he has like the best line, I don't remember it exactly, but he's like if you can't do uh if you can't do um the smart thing, then do the right thing or something like that and he he like it is he has uh he goes along on the, that suicide mission that they're going on but like he he reaches that apotheosis in the movie but i feel like in the show it would have been a such a meaningful journey to see this guy change from who he is in the beginning where he's kind of like betraying everybody to who he could have become but anyways that's that's a fantasy that we won't see <laughs> um we're like really shown the hardships of this border planet. Um, but as soon as Mal finds out it's medicine, he says, son of a bitch. So like, there's not even like a hesitation there. Um, like showing us his character and like his core morals and beliefs, like straight away, he's like son of a bitch. And he's like, you know, we just took medicine from these people. So, uh, and this correlates later at the end of the episode when the sheriff says, you know, when you find out, a man's got a decision and he's like I don't think he does because in his mind there is no decision to be made those people need that medicine and that that's the end of it right because he, he is kind of a righteous person in his heart of hearts even though he's having to be the bad guy to survive on the edge of civilization he's having to do these jobs and he's having to not ask what the goods are 
Um, but, you know, when circumstance reveals to him what they really are, then his righteous nature will not allow him to do that. And that's where the, like, the mal, bad in Latin, I feel like, really comes from. Like, is he a bad person? I don't think so. And that's what intrigues in Nara, too. Like, in the pilot episode, she's saying how complex a person, how how a mystery Mal is to her and how few men are such a mystery. And Mal is kind of that mercurial, you know, he will do, he will make a bold move. He will do something that is egregious or that is uh, perceived as wrong or bad or impulsive or rash but he has this code of honor and integrity that underwrites everything he does that really makes him such an intriguing character because of how he oscillates between you know right and wrong and what needs to be done and where concessions can be made so River's already said two by two hands are blue, and it's like, what was that about? And then we see the two guys, uh, the Alliance guys. At the very end. Yeah, at the very end we see them in the interrogation room. I think they, they're trying to make them come across as, like, creepy and a bit strange, because we're assuming that these are the doctors that have uh, experimented on her firsthand, or at least yeah. like the agents that were tasked with looking after and... and, and having her in that situation it's cool to have like a tagline as such like a little you know like with freddy krueger has like this little rhyme and it's scary but it's also like just this little innocent rhyme on the face of it and here we've got the whole two by two hands of blue they look a bit like those demons from hush yeah they're so creepy they're kind of like just like the way they're dressed and the way they behave and the actors they're they're like they're like emblems of bureaucracy. They look so like the the evil bureaucracy, the creepiness of bureaucracy and government and alliance. And not that I'm anti-government personally, but <laughs> like they, they look like the worst aspect of it that you can possibly present. Just that that emotionless, cold kind of calculating like you know doing the math on who gets to live and who gets to die yeah and you know that kind of thing but they really don't really go anywhere in this show no and even in the movie they're just kind of forgotten yeah just kind of forgotten i mean i'm very happy with where the movie goes and like just talking about obviously we'll talk about this when we get to the movie but um like tv shows that have gone on to make a film or, like, I guess I could compare it to, like, films made from games and stuff like that. Generally, you're not good. But this is a really good... It's, like, a really good standalone movie. And it's also really good to carry on from the show. So... Which is just kind of funny. It's kind of weird how it worked out. I covered all of my favorite moments. Do you have any favorite quotes or moments that you want to talk about? Yeah, I guess everything else that happens is just... I can say favorite quotes. So I love the whole conversation with the sheriff... And at the end, Mal's like, so would his job be open? Because <laughs> he learns that the guy that he's trying to talk about has died. That's just hilarious. Um, 
when they get back onto the ship and obviously uh, Jane's been drugged and he's just kind of laying there because she's Kaylee's like, well, you know, we tried to get him to the infirmary. He's just heavy. <laughs> it's just funny that with even like three or four people, they can't get this one dude um, to the infirmary because he's so big. Yeah, just visualizing that that yeah. scene where like they're trying to yeah. I just imagine him like carrying him and like bumping his head onto the wall and <laughs> dropping him like, oh, well, he's fine here." <laughs> Cuz he's like semi with it at this stage as well. Um and then yeah, I guess like the favorite bit cuz Jane is my favorite. Um the whole I was aiming for his head. I always thought like when I first watched this, I always used to think, "Wow, if he was aiming for his head, he could have very easily just killed Mal, you know, because his aim is so off. Like, he could have very easily just shot Mal in the head, but it's fine. It all went to plan, which I think is Again, part of this it's show. it's like with the loyalty thing. Like, do, would he have cared that much if who he hit? <laughs> do, does he care about Mal and these people? Who knows? Oh, I think he does. Them, you know, fumbling their way through and the fights never go exactly to plan, but they always come out. Not necessarily on top, but they they, they always come out the other side. (laughs) Someone's been shot again. (laughs) Yeah. Did did you like that darn moment where he kicks the guy into the the plane, the ship thing? This is my next bit that is like the funniest. Um, Yeah, I'm like, after the first guy gets killed and Mal's like, they bring on the next one and the next one's just like, Yep, no, I've got it. Yeah, no, yep, I understand. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, he doesn't want that to happen. But I think it's funny. Well, not funny, but, you know, Mal doesn't really think too hard about killing someone. I, I think we mentioned this in the first episode. If he thinks they're like a bad person. Well, if he thinks he has to do it for survival. Yeah. In the, like, in where he has to survive on the edge like that guy was going to just hunt him relentlessly mm-hmm. so you know in order to survive and continue he had to kill him but then also like the abruptness of the kick was so funny and i don't want to laugh just at someone dying but like it reminded me of that hulk's scene where he smashes loki so abruptly just grabs him and starts smashing him just the abruptness and the violence of that is a little bit satisfying, even though you don't want to admit it as an audience member. Yeah, but and, afterwards, it, and that makes it funny. Afterwards, he gives gives like the little cringe, as if to be like, "Oh, that's gross." Like, <laughs> but um, it was very cool. Um, yeah, I guess yeah, they're probably my favorite moments. But just overall in this episode, like Mal Nathan Fillion is just so on point with the. Just I don't know. I just feel like he speaks in a way that nobody else does. So sarcasm is really his thing. <laughs> it's my kind of comedy. Jane sucks, though. I don't like Jane. See, so you don't. I'm like kidding. Some... I like Jane. I oh, like good. Him. But I can understand why a lot of people would just straight up hate him. But yeah, no, he's just one of my favorite characters. Um, well, I think he was always my favorite. That's such a weird thing. That's such that's such a weird thing. You're drawn to villains. Yeah, I'm always drawn to villains because most villains have, like, the best backstories and the best reason to be doing what they're doing. And it's kind of similar to, like, Mao. You know, he was in this war and he's been, he's been, you know, he's gone through a lot. And a lot of people would argue, 
or in this universe could argue that the Alliance are the good guys, right? And Mao is a bad right. guy. Um, yeah. But from our point of view, from the underdogs and from the border planets, and if you live out there, the Alliance aren't necessarily great. They're like the ruling government, but they don't care about people. Yeah, well, say what you want about the Alliance. They were the ones who sent the, the medical supplies to the town. If they can, like, if if they can, if they have pennies in their like car crevice, they can pick them out and throw <laughs> them at the border planets. But they're they're like evil in their indifference, I guess. Yeah. Uh, they they also have some pretty egregious crimes that they've done. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that later. So Jane, I don't necessarily see him as a villain, but like I said, he's he's like. I guess the kind of bad guy on the crew, isn't he? He's the he's the brute, but you know, he's just cool as well. He's not a villain. He just represents something that we see so much of, which is that kind of very that that individualism, that kind of selfish streak and arrogance and you know, that in it for the money almost capitalistic attitude towards life where you know you'll sell your friends out if you get a good deal and uh you know it's not someone that is designed to be liked necessarily not that i'm uh, shaming you for liking him i (laughs) appreciate your perspective but the 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 like the i guess the appeal is that you have hope for him you hope that he can he he can be better because if he was better or at least like diff, if he was able to evolve then he could be such an asset and he could do so much good that that hope is enough to keep you coming back and wanting to see him and then i guess the villainy you like to see it because it is a subversion of you know the the goody two shoes stuff which is which mm-hmm. is more fun i guess in in a sense i mean adam baldwin in general is very good he's in angel briefly at the end isn't he again just playing the kind of muscle yeah he's always like the he's always the muscle he cares yeah. about the job he doesn't care about people i'd like to see him play the brain and just be a really <laughs> sensitive effeminate kind of loving caring guy that would be an interesting visual contrast if if someone could put him in that role you know, just as like a mother figure. Yeah, a lot of people get kind of typecast and yeah, he is kind of the muscle. But anyway, should we move on to our letters? Sure. Hello, The Nevers Podcast. This is Steve and this is for uh, Firefly. I'm actually, this this uh, voicemail is probably for the first episode, actually. I loved your coverage. The podcast is amazing. I loved hearing you guys talk about how you became fans of the series. I actually remember I watched the series originally when it aired. I know it's it's going to make me feel old, but 20 years ago and it was tough though because we didn't have DVRs, we didn't have you couldn't set your DVR to say just find a show and record it. You had to actually know when the show was going to air and Fox was so crazy about moving the time slot, moving the day that it was it was tough to get that those first few episodes. So when it came out on DVD, I was excited and I I bought it and the original DVDs had them in the order that they aired. So you watched it and yeah, it was, it was good, but 
I absolutely love, I have the Blu-ray now, and the Blu-rays have them in the order that Joss originally wanted them to air in, and it's so good to watch them that way. I watch them every couple of years, and uh, just, just am so excited to see these actors. I love to see them in other things. I can't wait. I hope you guys cover Dollhouse. That would be amazing uh, in this in-between time between the Nevers part one, uh, season one, part one and part two. Cover Dollhouse because I love Dollhouse as well. Eliza Dushka, I'm a huge fan of hers. And uh, yeah, just I loved that first episode and I might record a different voicemail for the train job here in a minute. I think with Dollhouse, uh, I was thinking kind of like, I don't think it's worth going through Dollhouse like episode by episode because at least half of each series is just kind of filler. Like I love the show, I love it to pieces, but yeah, you know, there's a lot of episodes where it's just here's something that happens and it doesn't directly correlate to anything in the grand scheme of things. But I'd definitely be up for doing kind of like maybe like a long episode for season one and then like an episode for season two maybe that's just like because the overarching story in Dollhouse and particular moments from from each episode are fantastic. But I don't think, I don't know, there are certain episodes where I don't think I could sit and talk for 40 minutes about them. Yeah, I have faint memories about that show where, like, she just goes hunting or, yeah. or just goes to a concert and meets Patton Oswalt or something. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know, like, what... Yeah, I, I, it's a good show, though. There's certain ones I would want to talk about, like Epitaph. Yeah. Those are some good ones. This is the thing. It's kind of like the epitaphs and that overarching story are so good. Yeah, there's episodes where it's kind of like there's not really much to discuss. I do want to say that I don't, I didn't really say the last time how I came to Firefly. So I'm, I'm 24. So like when Firefly was on TV, I was in kindergarten. I like, so, so like for me, my introduction was Buffy. Because when I was a little kid, my mom would watch Buffy and Angel. And like, those are some of the earliest media memories that I have from my prepubescent era. So like like, when I got a little bit older, like I guess high school age, uh, Buffy hit Netflix and I decided to watch it properly because I had this weird nostalgia for it, even though I'd never properly seen it. Like I remembered the like the Buffy theme song and the Angel theme song, <laughs> those were in my head, even though I didn't really see the shows. So I really got into rewatching them when they were on Netflix, and that really they coincided with like the Avengers coming out. So Whedon was very popular, and I decided to like watch all his shows. And Firefly just happened to be the one that I fell the most in love with. So I guess that's the story of how I came to it. You you already talked about your story last time. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think, I mean, I was like 12, I guess, when this came out. But yeah, I didn't watch it coming off the back of watching Buffy and Angel. And then I guess maybe in like 2000, I don't even know what year it was. But yeah, I know I was near college and I watched Serenity. And then I ended up somehow later, eventually getting around to watch Firefly. But yeah, you know, I did. I did watch Serenity when it came out as a kid. Like I, I remember we rented it or something, and I hadn't. I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It. Yeah. It was a good movie just by itself. Yeah, it was like one of my favorite sci-fi films, and I would watch it all the time. I just never got around to watching the TV show until I went to college, and people were like, 
oh, you know, you really need to watch Firefly. And I did, and it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting to see how, and like you say, now it's on streaming services. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people watching it for the first time. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it has a pretty big following anyway. I think, it, you know, it's one of those things that's not a flop when it comes out, but because of the way it was aired, it, you know, it didn't do well and it got cancelled. Uh, you know, there's like cult movies now that were total flops when they came out, didn't do well at the box office. And now they're like, have a cult following and are one of the, like the greatest movies of all time. Blade Runner. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how things can be received completely differently just depending on when they were viewed. I feel like that's going to happen with the Blade Runner 2049, the second movie they made in that series. That movie is so like so damn good. I can't imagine in the next 10 years that's not going to become a cult movie because it's so good and it just didn't do good in the in the box office. Mm. Nobody went to the theater. But it's really good. I recommend anybody who's listening to see it. Anyway, uh, moving on, we have another voice message. Um, this is our next and last letter. It's from Berza Halverson, and yeah, let's give it a listen. Hello, this is Birgit, the man with the unpronounceable name. I'm so excited that you are doing a show on Firefly because I love Firefly. My favorite characters are Simon and Jane. And thank you for answering my tweet last week. So the question I wanted to ask you this week is, uh, if you lived in the world of Firefly, would you be a brown coat? Uh, because what I found really interesting about the world of Firefly is how you have two worlds that sort of oppose each other. And one world is the world of the Alliance, and the other world is the world of the border planners uh, that were formerly independent before the war. And, and Mal, he takes a very strong stance, a uh, very uncompromising stance in defense of the border planners. And he says that he may have been on the losing side, but he still feels like he was on the right side. Uh, and he doesn't care that he lost the war. He doesn't care uh, about all that happens afterwards. Uh, uh, the thing that matters is that he fought for his beliefs. And I, I find Mal here being very similar to Penance on the, the uh, Nevers uh, when she goes on the mission to save Malady. And uh, not only does Penance fail to stop the hanging but the person that she was trying to save was never in any danger at all uh, but that doesn't matter what matters is that she tried to do the right thing and that's all anyone can do uh, but if we sort of look at the world that Mal wants to save uh, this is a world where medicine for minors can be stolen and sold for profit uh, it's a world of incredible savagery and brutality. And you talked um, last week about how in the core worlds, uh, sex workers like Inara enjoy a great amount of prestige and power. And um, 
we learn later that they have this union that allows them to blacklist uh, men who are abusive. Uh, and this is in great contrast to how sex workers are treated on the border planets. And even though Mal would never mistreat someone, and of course he comes to uh, the defense of the sex workers in the episode, I think it's called Heart of Gold. Uh, but, but even so, his attitude towards Anara's profession sort of marks him as um, a part of the border planet independent world in, instead of like he doesn't share the view on sex work that the core planets have. So if you lived in the world of Firefly, would you be willing to fight a civil war for freedom, for anarchy? Uh, and would it bother you that the world that you're trying to defend is uh, sort of characterized by uh, criminality, savagery, uh, exploitation, religious fanaticism? Uh, or would you be more comfortable living in a tyrannical regime where the uh, where law enforcement is very brutal and where there's a big difference between rich and poor? But uh, as the cliche says, at least the trains run on time. Okay, uh, very interested to hear what you think about that. Uh, hope you're having a great week and that you are feeling five by five and not two by two hands of blue. I like that um, he finishes with uh, feeling five by five and not two by two. It's good. Yeah, I mentioned this earlier. For me, kind of a lot of things in the world and like your perspective on life and stuff, it's kind of just like where you happen to be born, right? So, you know, I'm very lucky. I happen to be born in a country where, you know, we have free healthcare and free schooling and, you know. Congratulations. <laughs> living like, you know, as, at least, you know, I'm still on like the bottom end of society in terms of, you know, working class, not rich, you know, living day by day, whatever. But very, very lucky and very, very uh, fortunate and thankful. And I think that this question of, you know, whether you would be whatever is simply a case of like, first of all, where you happen to be born. Like Simon happened to be born into a well-to-do family that is obviously in one of the central planets that's under the governance of the Alliance and they see the Alliance as fine because the alliance don't bother them they're rich they're they're fine they, they they don't have to worry about anything and the alliance aren't a problem to them if you're born on one of these border planets the alliance seemingly might not care about you and don't help you and you know the you might not care about them you might think oh they're still the governing body you know like the people in the bar fight they're out on, on this planet, probably not really having anything to do with the Alliance, but they're still supporting the Alliance. Or you might just not care, like Jane. Um, but if you're someone like Mao, when you was actually in the battle and you, you were in the war, you know, you're fighting for your independence because I guess the world you're living in, you, you believe is fine. And now some governing body is trying to come in and take over everything. 
you know, that that's your position then. So I think it has a lot to do with just kind of like where you're at. Because if you're like Simon, you're living in a central planet, why would you... I don't think many people would try to rebel against the Alliance if you're going to be... Like, if your life's going to be totally fine. Do you know what I mean? Right, yeah. If you're already in a position of prosperity, then you have no reason to demand change. Um, but I guess, like, the Alliance was change in the sense that these massive government hierarchical structures were just combining with each other to just grab this monopoly and dominance and hegemony over everything. And, you know, I, well, first of all, I wanted to say, I don't think the border planets necessarily are independents because I mean, like we see a border planet in this episode in the very beginning and every one in that bar is Alliance friendly. So I don't think the border planets represent what the independents were fighting for. I think they represent the negligence and indifference of the Alliance because presumably everyone who lives on the border planets had to move away from the central Alliance planets either because they got lured by promises of paradise like we talked about or like maybe they got gentrified out of wherever they originally lived and needed a cheaper planet. Mm -hmm. But I I think like the question at its core is... Would you rather have tyrannical order or lawless chaos? (laughs) And like throughout history, like people have invited the tyrant into their lives and their homes because they're afraid of chaos and the unknown, like uh, Berzer says. And I'm sorry if I mispronounce your name, you know, making the trains run on time. I don't really have an answer to that yet. And But I do think there is a way to organize society in some way that's better than the way that it is right now. Because the way that it is right now, I don't think is working. Mm. I mean, that's just my feeling. And I feel like the way that the Amazon rainforest is burning down, there's an objective aspect to my feeling in the sense that this is not working the way that it is right now. And the way... Uh, what I feel like the independents could have been fighting for is now that I'm thinking of it, I feel like maybe that anarchic thing is more of let's not a lot. Let's not have an alliance. Let's not have such a massive government and this massive globalized country with hundreds of millions and billions of people where everybody is a kind of a stranger to each other and there's these factions and there's you know uh restrictions and regulations and all this stuff how about let's have smaller communities where we live together in you know uh relative in with relative independence and you know it, it's t- like maybe 30 to 40 to 50 to 100 people who all kind of know each other and there's no like police brutality because everybody is on a first name basis and that kind of ideal you know I don't know if that's even plausible or utopian or what complications there would be but I, and like and again I just said I don't have the answer 
but I feel like we don't necess- we don't have to settle for just Coke or Pepsi necessarily. There's so many there's there's so many options out there that we just haven't explored and that we're not ready to explore because we're afraid of chaos, we're afraid of the unknown and we want this order that's not necessarily working. And maybe that's what Mal is was fighting for because I don't I think he's definitely not fighting for what's happening right now on the border planets because those are not very pleasant yeah experiences to live yeah I think it's difficult because like we don't know exactly what life was like for everybody before the alliance took over and right I don't know I guess there's probably a lot of people that would think that what the alliance have done has benefited a lot of people but yeah I'd like to think that I'm you know a brown coat that would fight for I don't know fight for everyone to have a better life and if that is what they were fighting for because well again, I would assume the alliance folks who are fighting felt the same way like this yeah is this a is the life. thing this is the thing and I think it would have had to do, I, like you say on the border planets even as I said in the in the bar fight they're still alliance supporters and it seems like brown coats are like few and far between yeah I just want to be a good person and I think that means different things depending on where you are. Because like I say, I wouldn't ever have said that Simon was probably a bad person. You know, he was... And if you're living like as a family in a place where your life's totally fine, you have everything you need, and whether you stay governed under whatever you are at the moment as an independent planet or you become governed by the Alliance, nothing's really going to change. You don't really have a reason to fight against it. And it seemed like someone like Simon wasn't even aware of how people live on the border planets and how life is anywhere other than where they live. And I think that's kind of just like government and the world today. People vote for whatever's a best interest to them, regardless of how it's going to affect everyone else. Whereas I try to look at, you know, what's going to help everybody and try to give everybody a more kind of not exactly equal life, but a life that is just, you know, more fair for everyone. Well, I just want to, I just want to mention, like, I, I think you're totally right when you say that a life that's more fair for everyone, because what, what we're living in right now, like, we are living in the alliance. Like, I'm living in the United States of America. United is another word for ally alliance. And same with United Kingdom is where you are. Like, we are living in the Alliance. And I think there is a historic parallel to this show that I I don't, I'm not the most educated about, um, but I'm going to speak about it anyways because <laughs> it's relevant, which is the, I guess, the Civil War aspect where the brown coats would represent the South who didn't want... Uh, unification who didn't want a United States of America and then you know the Union soldiers or the Alliance and you know they they won the war and the whole lost cause thing and I feel like if there was if this show was to be explored as a reboot or something you would really have to contend with that aspect of it where you I feel like you would have to reverse it so where like this show was from the perspective of the independence i think 
the reboot would have to be from the perspective of the alliance, maybe a new alliance, and just like asking the question, can there be a good government that works for the people and doesn't exploit the people? Mm. I don't know. That's uh, that's that's a question for some other people to figure out. Yeah. So I think it's like it can be really easy to say, yeah, I'd be a brown coat totally, but at the like heart of it, really, you have to kind of just think, mm, actually, if you was living in the world, like it's a difficult. Yeah, I mean, we literally are alliance. Like, yeah, like everyone. Is as much as I in... want to romanticize the brown coat, I am alliance, so yeah. I can't really do that truthfully. Everyone's living under like a governed body or whatever, and just kind of following through life. Um, I think you mentioned about this in the last episode, didn't you? About how we're all just part of this social kind of exactly. cog going around or whatever. Yeah, it's like easy to pick a side when it's on a TV show, but life is far more complicated. Um, yeah, so I mean, still very much enjoy this episode. I think as a pilot, it still works and it's it's fine. But yeah, watching it straight after the the actual pilot. It goes over. You can feel like, you know, oh, they're saying that again. They're saying that again. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, just watching the show as a whole, every episode's great. <laughs> Not biased here, you know, just one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Yeah, you know, watching this episode as a reviewer with the knowledge that uh, this is a backdoor pilot was almost more fun and made <laughs> me like it more. But watching it as an audience member, as I was when I was first watching this show, this was one of my least favorite ones. It's probably the weakest of all of them, in my opinion. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I, I thought this was the weakest episode. Like, this was the one that I rewatched the least. Hmm. Not that yeah. it's bad. It's fun. And, you know, it has some good humor. It has some good action set pieces and whatnot. But it wasn't really something that grabbed me. It, it was very incremental in its right. progress yeah i'm uh but it's a really good one my favorite episodes are yet to come yeah i'm looking forward to to watching the rest um yeah thanks to our listeners thanks to um people writing in and getting us to delve even more deeply into everything yeah and sorry about your name uh berger i i feel your pain because i too had my name mispronounced by just about everybody i've met the first time i've met them so rest assured i understand what you're going through <laughs> so letters can be sent to fireflybits at gmail.com that's fireflybits at gmail.com uh, so the synopsis for our next episode which is titled bushwhacked um, so Serenity is pulled in by an Alliance cruiser while investigating a spaceship that was attacked by Reavers. Simon and River must hide to prevent capture while something is wrong with the lone survivor of the attacked spaceship. It's going to be a good one. Till then, stay, stay shiny. shiny. <laughs> this episode was written, researched, produced, and edited by Matthew at Culture Inject Studios. The intro and outro music was produced by Gilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on The Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. 
You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders. If I if I was a television executive and I had any money or power, I would develop a show specifically for the purpose of casting Adam Baldwin <laughs> as a character who like skips through a forest with a big <laughs> smile and like caresses a tree branch and he smells a flower and just like has the most <laughs> lovely expression and you know is so beautiful. I that would be what I would do with my power. <laughs> I would pay to see that show. <laughs>